In a rather stunning turn of events, verse 20 tells us, and look at it again, that Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Meaning, Jesus gave explicit orders prohibiting, barring, and forbidding these men that had just identified him from spreading the news of that identity to the people of Israel. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? It seems odd from our vantage point because you hear it from your pastors, your elders, your friends from the Bible all the time. Go and tell people about Jesus. Go and tell people about Jesus. Tell people who he is. Tell everybody he's the Messiah. And here's Jesus with his disciples saying, don't tell anyone who I am. And given all that's transpired, previously transpired in this interaction between Jesus and the disciples, it raises the level of oddness to it. I mean, recall the context here. Jesus has previously, while traveling with the disciples, come to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And there, according to verse 13 of chapter 16, he asks them this question. Look at it again. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples, they've been keeping their ear to the ground. And so they were quite familiar with the numerous ideas and opinions that had made their way through the crowds. And so they recounted the varying theories about Christ's identity to him in reply, saying in verse 14, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And you can just imagine Jesus listening to the disciples list off all of these different theories as to his identity, nodding his head and stroking his beard attentively. Hmm. And when they'd finished answering this question, Jesus immediately followed it up with another more important, more penetrating inquiry in verse 16. Look at it again. Verse 15. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And hearing this most pointed and direct question, Peter raised his voice and he spoke on behalf of the disciples and he answered the question correctly. In verse 16, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Jesus, you are the one that Israel has been waiting for. You, Jesus, are the Messiah sent by God to save us, to redeem us, to liberate us. You, Jesus, have come to set the captives free. You, Jesus, are the eagerly expected, long-hoped-for fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel. Promises that he made to the prophets. Promises that he made to Abraham. Promises that he made to Moses. And promises that he made to David. It's to you that all of these promises point. And now you are here. But not only that, Peter took it a step further and he said, and you are the son of the living God. While he may not, like I've said before, fully grasp or understand what that means, he knows that there is a unique, one-of-a-kind relationship that exists between Christ and the Father that far exceeds any that have come before him, any on the earth with him, and any who will come after him. In saying that Jesus is the Son of the living God, Peter is in essence saying, we recognize that you are in some way divine. You are the only begotten Son of the living God, the only God who truly exists. We have seen all of your works. We have watched you calm the storms. We have seen and witnessed the demons tremble before you. We have watched as you have restored sight to the blind and raised the dead. This is a most stunning moment of clarity, isn't it? While all the crowds are bantering about ideas that fall woefully short about who Christ is, about his true identity, the disciples see and understand and grasp who Jesus really is. And this came about not because the disciples had figured it out on their own, not because the disciples were smart enough to see it, not because someone from the crowds wrote a note and slipped it to them and said, here, here's the answer. No, this recognition of Christ's identity came to them by the revelation of God, as we read in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is how every one of us comes to truly know and understand and grasp the identity of Jesus. This is how every one of us comes to know and appreciate who Jesus truly is by the goodwill and revelation of the Father. As he opens our eyes to the truth that Christ is indeed Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, one might assume... One might think that on the heels of such a blessing, on the heels of such a declaration or a recognition of who Jesus is, that Jesus might say to them, all right, boys, you got it. Now get out there and let everyone know. You would think that Jesus might immediately commission the disciples to go spread the good news. But look, he didn't. In fact, what he told them to do was the exact opposite in verse 20. You see it again. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Why? What possible reason could there be for Jesus to so sternly and unyieldingly forbid the disciples from going out and telling everyone that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? In many ways, it calls to mind a situation that we find ourselves in right now. We find ourselves in it today with the rise of the internet, especially the rise of the internet in our pockets with us everywhere we go. The rise of this ability to perform Google searches on just about any subject whenever we feel like it. We see people seem to have lost, we the people, seem to have lost the capacity, lost the desire, lost the patience for deep, thorough, insightful, and penetrating study of a subject or an idea. And we've replaced those instead with 10-minute overviews that we lift from websites, tweets, opinion pieces, news articles, and Facebook posts. We're no longer committed to learning and discipleship anymore, to thoughtful, committed, long-suffering effort to be a leader or an authority in a field or in a subject. Instead, we've begun to delude ourselves that we are into believing that we're experts on pretty much every subject known to man. We know everything about subjects that people of previous generations would spend months and years studying before they ever ventured to speak a word about those subjects. I remember one of my seminary professors telling those of us in his class, looking straight at us and saying, none of you are experts on anything yet, but far too many of you think that you are. He told us, don't think that you know anything about a subject until you have read at least six or seven quality books or works about that subject from primary sources and varying viewpoints, and even then, all you've done is scratch the surface of that subject. Restrain your pride, take captive that part of you that deludes yourself into believing that you know what you're talking about before you've put in the work to understand. And what I mean by that, he said, is the real work, the hard work. Internet searches don't count. He was very clear on that. You could not quote or cite internet searches in papers in seminary. Instead, it must be long labors, hours of reading, hours of reflection, hours of formulating. See, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in our culture, we tend to want all of the perks and the pay and the respect of a master while we are still yet beginners. When we don't know that there is so much that we still yet don't know. And it's a similar, the disciples here, they really have no clue that they have no clue about so many things. They have so many preconceptions that must be undone before they can faithfully and accurately proclaim Christ to the people. This bit of advice from my seminary professor has always stuck with me because it's good advice for all of us. Before thinking we're a master at anything, Make sure that you have read at least six or seven good quality works on that subject. 
And if you haven't, hold off. It's good advice for all of us. I hear much the same at uh, my children's judo classes. The leader of the class will repeatedly remind us that in, in order to be good at a technique, you must dedicate yourself to practicing it correctly, not once, not a hundred times, not a thousand times, not 10,000 times, but tens of thousands of times. And don't think that you're a pro until you've put in the work. Because, and it's true, I've seen it in judo, and I think this works out into the world as well, when you think you're a pro but you're not, you can hurt others around you pretty badly. In similar manner, the disciples following Jesus here, <clears throat> sure they comprehended the question to, as to who Jesus was, but for them that was only the beginning. That was only the 10-minute Google search. They still weren't ready to go out and speak for him. But why? They had spent so much time in the echo chamber that was Israel that they'd been conditioned to see the person and work of Messiah in a very particular way. Even going so far as to ignore any and all contrary considerations, possibilities, and truths. And for this reason, while they could say, you are Messiah, you are Christ, you are the Son of the living God, they really still had no clue what that meant. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does that mean he is going to do as the Christ? You see, these are men who from a very young age had been taught and influenced in every single sphere of life by the same religious leaders that Jesus has been rebuking his entire ministry. These are 12 men who had heard the stories while they sat at the dinner tables with their parents. They heard the eager longings of those extended family when they'd meet with them for gatherings. They took note about what Messiah would do and who he would be from the culture that they lived in, from those who taught them in school. And everything had been telling them the same message. When the Christ arrives, he will be a living, breathing, immediate conqueror. He will gather up all of the fighting men in Israel and he will lead them into battle against the foreign powers that oppress them and hold them in bondage. Messiah will deal a crushing blow to the enemy and he will throw off the shackles in which Israelite hands are bound. The Messiah, the son of David, will then be crowned king over a united Israel and he will lead the nation in a time of unprecedented peace, prosperity, and influence greater than anything Israel has ever seen even when under the reign of King Solomon himself. Messiah will, when he arrives, break the nations with a rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And all who despised him and all who set their face against Israel would be overthrown. And while it is true that Jesus will one day return to reign as king in Jerusalem, something that will take place in the future upon Israel's hearing and heeding the command of Christ to repent. Listen, the kingdom is right there. It is at hand. Israel, in order to lay hold of it, must repent and turn to Christ. But until that day, the Israelites in Christ's day had overlooked or explained away a number of references to the work of Messiah that he would accomplish during his life. They didn't want to hear about a Messiah who, as God prophesied through Isaiah in chapter 53, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Israelites had no idea that when Messiah came, he would deal with their sin along with the sins of the world by going to the cross and dying there. You see, there was a much bigger issue that needed to be addressed and dealt with than Israel's national liberty at this moment. And so, not seeing that, 
the Israelites at this time had a tendency to gloss over or to explain away these types of texts. And so Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, must undo the cultural programming that these disciples have been experiencing and hearing for their entire lives. And so, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. This, Jesus started to teach his disciples about what it actually means for Jesus to be the Christ and what the Christ will actually accomplish he will tell them a number of truths from the Old Testament that they'd either ignored, suppressed, or avoided. These disciples required more training in the school of Jesus before they could go out into the world and tell everyone that this is the Christ. See, Matthew records Jesus doing just that three times. Revealing what Messiah had come to do here in verse 21, which we'll look at this morning. Again, if you flip over to verse chapter 17, verse 22 to 23, you'll read this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. It's pretty explicit. And then again, for the third time in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, you can flip over there too. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So now that the disciples recognize the who, in that they've recognized and acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, now Jesus will reveal to them what he must do. You see that in verse 21? He must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. This is all new information for these disciples. You see it. Jesus said it here. He must, meaning that this is a divine imperative. It is necessary. It is unavoidable. This, what he will do has already been determined by, in eternity past. And Jesus, in accordance with the Father's will, led by the Spirit, will voluntarily suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day raised. So listen to how Jesus describes it. First, he must go to Jerusalem. Why? Why must he, by divine imperative, go to Jerusalem? Well, a couple of reasons. Primarily, as you read the Old Testament, you see quite clearly that Jerusalem was chosen by God as his place of worship and sacrifice. Read Deuteronomy 12. As we read there, the Lord, as the Lord was preparing his people for entry into the promised land, we see this in chapter 12, verses 5 to 8. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. We know that now is Jerusalem. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and your firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. So you see here, the Lord's call for Israel's sacrifices and offerings to be brought to the place that the Lord will choose, the place we now know as Jerusalem, the holy city, the city that is chosen for the temple, the city to which every Israelite must bring sacrifices if they were to be acceptable to God, is the place Jesus must go. And the necessity of offerings to God being offered in Jerusalem uh, as the place of God's choosing in Deuteronomy 12 alone is repeated five times. Five times in one chapter. That's a lot. And Jesus, as the one who fulfills all righteousness, would, when the time came, set his face toward Jerusalem. You can read it in Luke 9.51. It makes it very clear. From this point on, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus would go on later in Luke to say, it cannot be, in Luke 13, 33, that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. As the Lamb of God came to offer himself up to save his people from their sins, as he is the Lamb of God come to be slain, he must go to Jerusalem. 
On top of this, the Jews in Jerusalem were the ones that were particularly hostile to Jesus. It was these Jews who came from Jerusalem that accused Jesus of breaking the law or the tradition of the elders in 15 verse 1. A very, very, very serious charge in their mind. It was these Jews breathing out murder against Jesus that kept him from visiting Jerusalem earlier in his ministry. You can see it in John chapter 7, for example. In John chapter 7, verse 1, we read, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, Jerusalem, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But there was coming a moment in the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ when he must go to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, look what it says next in verse 21. And there he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, and the scribes. Here is a point that Jesus had to stress to the disciples. Messiah must suffer many things, meaning he must endure pain, and he must endure harm at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The reign of Jesus Christ did not begin with the world's applause. It did not begin with all the leaders in Israel with their riches and pomp hailing him as king. No, it began with his suffering many injustices by those hands, by the hands of sinful and wicked men. These very leaders, these very Elders and chief priests and scribes ought to have been the ones who had pointed Israel to Jesus as Messiah. They ought to have repeated the call that Jesus made to repentance to the nation after having repented themselves. But instead, they would agitate for his murder. Their hands would be the hands that beat him. Their mouths would be the mouths that mocked him and chanted in unison for his crucifixion. The elders here means means the head of tribes and households. The chief priests here were mostly made up of the Sadducees who would be the more liberal branch of Jewish leadership. And the scribes here are the, the Pharisees, the more conservative branch of Jewish leadership. Meaning all three of these groups who composed the Jewish government called the Sanhedrin, the high courts, the Jewish governing body, all three of these would clasp hands to make sure that Jesus suffered the indignity of mockery, the indignity of suffering, the indignity of the cross. And they even went so far, as Matthew 26 tells us, they spit in his face and struck him, liberal and conservative alike. They all wanted Jesus dead. Neither truly appreciated him for who he is. When he did not fit their expected shape, when the truth and the words of Jesus crossed what they wanted, they wanted him eliminated. We can learn something from this today, can't we? Because as we'll read later, Jesus talks about having the mind of man rather than the mind of God. And if I'm just purely speaking about the mind of man here, we tend to divide everything up these days into the political right and left. Seems like that's where our minds are consistently at at this moment. But listen, the same was true back then in the Sanhedrin. The same was true in the days of Christ. And yet both of them when confronted with the reality and the truth of Christ, hated him. They both hated the man. Man, on whatever side of the political spectrum he is, when, if they don't truly love Christ, always hates Jesus. And so all of us, as we will learn in our text today, must look above and simply learn the truth of God. Simply listen to the words of Jesus and obey what he says no matter who hates it. We need to stop dwelling so exclusively on the things of man and letting them govern the way our minds think and operate. That's exactly what the, what the disciples were su- struggling with here. But these elders and priests and scribes also proceeded to hand Jesus over to the Romans who also contributed to Christ's sufferings as they scourged him and mocked him also. So you see, not only must Messiah go to Jerusalem and endure such suffering at the hands of men, but look at what it says next in verse 21. He must also be killed. 
Meaning he must be put to death. He must be murdered. And the death of Jesus Christ took place at his crucifixion as Matthew, when, as Matthew describes in chapter 27, verse 50, Jesus yielded up his spirit. And finally, the good news, although it seems like the disciples missed this part after they heard the word killed, it's like they didn't hear anything that came after. Jesus explicitly ended this trip to Jerusalem with, by speaking of his resurrection, in that he must, on the third day, be raised. While Messiah would endure suffering and death, being abandoned to the grave and be remaining dead was not part of the plan. He must be raised on the third day. So you and I know on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, why he must do all these things. We know that for all who trust in him, for all who repent and believe in him, that the sufferings of Christ, he suffered at the hands of sinful men, the death that he died on the cross, he did it all in our place. He suffered what we ought to have suffered. He died the death that we deserve to die. He bore the punishment for sin that should befall us. Christ died so that we who believe in him would live. At the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him, by grace, through faith, we might become the righteousness of God. And the I mean, to be fair, the disciples didn't know that at this point. But we know that Jesus knows better. Jesus knew better. And while everything he said went completely against the expectations of Messiah, of, of, for Messiah by, from the disciples, because Christ went on and did what he said he was going to do, our sins are forgiven on the basis of this work. Jesus knew why he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Jesus knew why he had to be killed and on the third day be raised. But the disciples at this point didn't. They didn't understand. All the disciples could see was their dreams of national liberty vanishing before their eyes. Instead of conquering Rome, instead of reigning over Israel in the here and now, instead of establishing the nation of peace and prosperity that we have so desperately waited for and longed for and hoped for, you are telling us that you have come to suffer? The Christ that we've all been hoping for and expecting will be killed? And as these words flashed before their eyes, Peter understood. The Jesus who is the Christ that Jesus himself here is, is describing does not align with the expectations of Peter and the disciples. Peter thinks to himself, has he not come to fulfill our earthly expectations? Has he not come to fulfill our national hopes? Has he not come to see to establishing our personal dreams and our wants and our desires? While we know this is not we know on this side, not yet for Peter. And this was simply too much for him. And overcome by what he's just heard, he does this most astonishing thing in verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying... Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This same Peter, who just a few verses earlier recognized and declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, now look, he took it upon himself to tell Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, how to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. The goal here is rather shocking, isn't it? Peter and the disciples had just concluded and answered the question of the Lord's identity, but no sooner did Jesus say something that Peter didn't like. As soon as Jesus spoke a truth that crossed Peter's expectations, Peter's hopes, Peter's wants, Peter was willing to take it upon himself to correct and to contradict the very Son of the living God. 
Peter's response here reveals just how little he understood of the Lord's plans and just how committed he was to his human ideals. Peter here revealed his desperate desire to control the situation so that it ends, even if it means taking Jesus aside to rebuke him, that it ends in his preferred outcome. Peter wanted what Peter wanted, and not even Jesus was going to get in the way. And so Peter made it clear to Jesus here that he disapproved of what Christ had just said in the strongest possible terms. Jesus, what you have just said doesn't conform to what I expect. I disapprove. Now, we might look at Peter and wonder, what a fool! How could he do such a thing? Let's hold on a second and recognize that Peter is a mirror into our own identity. Let us see in ourselves and recognize in ourselves the mistakes of Peter here. And let us learn from his mistakes. Let us be, oh, so very, very, very careful that our wants, our hopes, our desires, our preferences, our expectations are not so conditioned by the world and shaped by the culture that we live in that we can't see and appreciate and obey the truth of God's Word ourselves. We must be on guard against being carried away by public sentiments, by worldly situations, by wars in culture in such a way that these things govern our thoughts and control our responses, even to the point where we would ignore the Word of God. Again, remember that on all sides of the political spectrum in Israel, they hated Jesus. It's the same today. Wherever your stripes lie, if you really went to those and said, here's what Jesus said, here's what Jesus teaches, here's who Jesus is, they'd hate him too, unless they were truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Instead, we must heed the command that has been set down for us by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. When he said in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So listen, all of you here this morning who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, set your minds on knowing God's thoughts as they are revealed to you in Scripture. Strive to know, strive to appreciate, strive to be governed by the truth of God in His Word. Commit yourself to knowing, believing, and obeying God's good, perfect, and pleasing will, even and especially when it crosses your flesh, when it crosses with your expectation, when it crosses with what you want to be true. And even and when it goes so clearly, directly, and forcibly against the spirit of the age. Commit yourself to discerning the truth in a world filled with lies. Commit yourself to knowing the Word of God so deeply that even if it shatters the entire worldview you hold right now, you recognize that what Jesus will build in its place will be ten times, ten thousand times better. See, Peter allowed his culture to dictate his beliefs. Peter allowed culture to dictate his response to the word of Christ when Christ said the Messiah must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be raised. And how did Jesus respond to Peter who was so focused on the things of man? Jesus outed Peter here as a mouthpiece of Satan himself. Oh, how often we do the same, don't we? How often do we see others who profess Christ respond to God's word as Peter did to Christ's word here? 
How often do we hear God's word and either ignore it, avoid it, justify ourselves in our disobedience to it, rather than hearing it, believing it, and obeying it, even if it causes great pain to ourselves. To avoid and to justify is akin to taking the word of God aside, like Peter did to Christ, and rebuking it. How often do we, how often do you, maybe not in these words, respond to a clear, direct teaching of God's word with, far be it from Scripture to say such a thing. We read, for example, and we, we've talked about this, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Remember that? We looked at that. Blessed are the peacemakers. But yet, we repeatedly ignore and push these words aside in favor of bitterness and division and adding fuel to fires that are raging throughout our world. We read, as we're going to come up to in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And yet, instead of doing what Jesus told us to do, if you're angry with someone, go tell them. It's right there, Matthew 18, 15. We set it aside in favor of bitterness, stewing in it, and justifying ourselves in our disobedience while assuming that people can read our minds. They should know why we're angry. We also, like Peter, can take it upon ourselves to rebuke the Lord when things in our lives aren't going the way we want them to go. Why am I sick, Lord? Why am I suffering, Lord? Why can't I get ahead in life, Lord? Why isn't the world looking the way I want it to look, Lord? We can grumble against him just like the Israelites did in the wilderness. So again, Peter is like a mirror here that we should all hold up to our own faces and see our reflection. And recognize, as Peter would later in his life, that God's plan, God's will, is always the best plan and the best will. You and I might not be able to see or grasp or understand how his will is working out, how what happens right now in your life contributes to his great glory and your ultimate good. But if you believe God's word and you know that God is good, then you know that it will. Whatever you are enduring in your life right now, the Lord has deemed this the best course for you. So how can, how will you look to and trust and exalt and honor the Lord in it? See, take Peter here. His assumption is that living a living, triumphant, temporally reigning temporarily liberating Jesus without a cross is of more value to humanity than a Christ who must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things, must be killed, and on the third day must be raised. You see what Peter's doing here? Can you see it? Without knowing it, Peter wanted Jesus to accept the very offer that Satan held out to Jesus way back in Matthew chapter 4. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory I offer to you. Peter here tried to turn Jesus from the cross. Peter here unwittingly tried to do the same thing that Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. And for that reason, look what Jesus said to him. Jesus turned to Peter and turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Peter didn't know it. Peter probably even meant well, as those who, many of those who presume to give us advice and rebuke often do. But his rebuke here did not align with the promises of God's word, the prophecies of God's word, the revelation of God in his word. But it instead flowed from a mind set on the things of man, which is what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And in so doing, with the things of man forming the basis for Peter's rebuke of Jesus in this instance, Peter unwittingly became the mouthpiece of Satan himself. It's always Satan who tries to convince Christ to take the crown without enduring the cross. 
It's always Satan who still labors in us to see that suffering and trial and discipline are an abnormal part of the Christian life. And that's what Jesus is going to address next in verses 24 to 28. Oh, how easy it is for us who, like Peter, do indeed love Jesus without intending to become mouthpieces for Satan ourselves. Taking Satan's side spreading Satan's lies. The lie here, once again, is seeking to turn Jesus from all he must do, seeking to turn Jesus from the path he must follow to save all who would believe in his name. And we too, when our words, our advice, our rebuke proceed from a mind that is set on the things of man as opposed to the things of God, we too become, without meaning to, those who spread Satan's lies rather than God's will. Think about your words. Think about what we say to one another. Do the words you speak minister grace to those who listen? Do the words you speak point people to the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do the words you speak focus people and hone them in on the Father's will? Or do your words inspire strife among the people of God? Do your words promote pride and unforgiveness and sin among the people of God? Do your words oppose the will of God? See, we must be much more careful about the words we speak to one another. So God's word challenges you to commit yourself to knowing his word and then speaking from his word to those around you. Commit yourself to being an ambassador of Christ, a herald for Christ. May it never be that you become, either knowingly or unknowingly, a mouthpiece for Satan. And Jesus, recognizing the influence behind Peter's words here, turned to Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Back off, Satan. Peter, be quiet and fall in line. Peter, you are a hindrance to me. Instead of being what you ought to be, an obedient disciple, you, Peter, have become a trap, an enticement to sin, a snare, one who would actually try to prevent me from following and obeying the Father's good plan. But thank the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not permit Peter to tell him what he should do. He will not permit Peter to tell him how to be the Messiah. He will not permit Peter to tell him what path he must walk. And thank God, he doesn't give us permission to do that either. You and I must recognize our role and our place. We hear his word, we trust his word, we obey his word. Peter doesn't get to set the terms and conditions You and I don't get to set the terms and conditions. The Father in heaven sets the terms and conditions. We don't get to tell Christ what he must be like, what he must do, how he must act. No, Christ sets the terms. He speaks. We fall in line. He commands. We obey. He reveals. We believe. And Jesus then made it clear to Peter Your being a hindrance to me stems from a particular place. Look at it. You're setting the setting of your mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. From your not seeing things from God's point of view, but wallowing around in man's point of view. And here's the main problem. There is a reason why we stress over and over and over and over again that you know and study God's word. What's your knowledge of God's Word like? Is it the 10-minute Google knowledge? Or is it the product of long-suffering patience, agonizing over what God's Word says and trying to discern it appropriately so that you can speak the refreshing and life-giving words of God to your brothers and sisters? Or is the Bible something that irritates you or annoys you and you're just too lazy to read it and do it? One of those will lead to a mind set on the things of man, 
where the, man, the things of man govern how your mind works, one of them will lead to the renewal and the transformation of your mind so that you can test and understand and discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Which one do you want? Peter was so committed to the erroneous views of Israel, therefore the things of man, that it led to Peter, quoting Pastor John MacArthur, to reason from his own finite and sinful mind. And in so doing, he found himself siding with Satan and opposing God. May it never be that we get there. Think about it. God deemed it necessary that Christ die and rise again to save his people. But Peter comes to Jesus thinking he knows better. He, to him, the idea of a suffering Messiah was a scandal. But I want you to just think about this for a second. As Peter sidled up to Jesus and said to him, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Do you have any idea what Peter was asking for? What Peter was asking Jesus to do when he did that? As Peter told Jesus that suffering, rejection, and death are not the path of Messiah, Peter, with his mind firmly set on the things of man, without knowing it, was asking Jesus to damn his soul for eternity. Talk about shortcomings in knowledge. Had Jesus done what Peter asked, Peter would be in hell right now, suffering under the eternal wrath and justice of God. You want to talk about someone who does not know what is best for him. As is always the case, the word of Christ the will of the Father in heaven will fly in the face of conventional earthly wisdom, and yet it always proves to be the best way. Had Jesus listened to Peter here, we would all remain dead in our sins. And it might not have looked like it in the moment, but God truly does work all things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, doesn't he? even if it crosses your desires right now. And it would take a while, but Peter would, and his disciples would eventually come to see that they were wrong, as we all will when we, if we are holding on to you know, things of our own and, and crossing the word of Christ. We will all see that his word is right and ours was wrong. They were being tossed to and fro by the hollow, deceptive philosophies of the world, Philosophies that are born, as we realize, as we read from Romans 1, from darkened hearts and futile minds by those who claim to be wise but are in essence fools who suppress the knowledge of the truth of God in favor of self-idolatry. But after the resurrection, after everything Jesus said would come to pass came to pass, after the ascension of Christ, after the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the minds of the disciples, the minds of the apostles were set on the things of God, and from that point on, the words that proceeded from their mouths, what they now valued was transformed, and they now knew and understood the will of God, listened to it in their preaching. I pray that we too might have as the centerpiece of our conversation the very things that were proclaimed by Peter, the same man who said, no, this will never happen to you, now says the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Christ are the center of wisdom. In Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you hear it all? The same Peter who at one point rebuked Jesus for saying this exact thing is now proclaiming them himself. At Pentecost, Peter here declared, Christ went to Jerusalem. Christ suffered many things at the hands of lawless men. Christ was killed and he rose again. And again in Acts chapter 3, as Peter proclaimed in Solomon's portico in Jerusalem, saying this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You see it again. This is now the centerpiece of his preaching, that Christ must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things, must be killed, and must be raised up on the third day. And still again, finally, as Peter and John stood before the council to answer to the Sanhedrin for a miracle of healing that they performed, Peter said this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So you see, Peter, the very words Peter so hastily and strongly reacted against the first time Jesus spoke them ended up becoming the very foundation and centerpiece of his life. The very centerpiece of his preaching. And it remains to this day the message upon which your hope and my hope rests. If you get anything from this, recognize this, the word of Christ always proves true. It always proves best. It always issues in the greatest possible outcome. So leave behind the setting of your mind on the things of man and instead set your mind on the things of God in recognition of this fact. His word, his will, is truly good is truly pleasing, and is truly perfect. Amen? Father, we praise you and we thank you for what we just learned here this morning. We thank you for recording Peter's folly here in Scripture for us, that we who have imitated his folly in life might see how you dealt with him in his life. You forgave him, you restored him, and you made him a more, one of the most powerful preachers in the history of the church. And so we praise you for that, and we recognize that if we have become mouthpieces of Satan during our lives, that you will forgive us of that when we confess it. So I pray, Lord, that for all of us struggling maybe with how to balance the word and the culture we live in and trying to figure out all of those things that your Holy Spirit um, would give us some clarity, and that as we look to your word for the transformation of our minds, that it would provide us with everything we need. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.